Good evening everybody, thank you all very much for coming out. It's, uh, my name's Alexander Key, I'm an assistant professor of Arabic and comparative literature here. And I'm teaching a course called, uh, called The Ethics of Jihad, for which it has been a tremendous privilege to invite this year speakers and scholars of the calibre of Professor Jackson. What I'd like to say very briefly to introduce Professor Sherman Jackson to you this evening is that this is a, a scholar of classical Arabic and a scholar of, of classical Islamic law who has done what very few scholars of classical Arabic and classical Islamic law done and taken that knowledge and moved it into the, into the 23rd century, into the realm of theory, into the realm of theology and philosophy, linked it to community activism and put the whole package together. I'll just give you the, as a, by way of introduction, the titles of his books. In 1996, Islamic Law and the State, the Constitutional Jurisprudence of Shahab al-Din al-Qarafi. Then in 2005, and you can see from the titles the, the shift, the conceptual shifts in the scholarship, Islam and the Black American, Looking Towards the Third Resurrection. Oxford in 2005. In 2009, Islam and the Problem of Black Suffering, again from Oxford University Press. And then there are three translations, and I can say as, as somebody in comparative literature who, who knows some Arabic, that the production of translations is just as important and just as much of a conceptual achievement as scholarship in many cases. Professor Jackson translated Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, the famous al-Ghazali's Faisal al-Tafraqa, with Oxford in 2002. Then Ibn Allah Sakandri's Taj al-Arus, with Oxford in 2012. And then just this week, his translation of the Egyptian political and religious movement al-Qanah al-Islamiyah, has come out with Yale University Press. That's called Initiative to Stop the Violence, Sadat's Assassins, and the Renunciation of Political Violence. I think the scale of those achievements is clear from the titles, and without further ado, it gives me tremendous pleasure to introduce to you Professor Sherman Jackson. Excuse me, excuse me. Well, first of all, let me uh, thank you, uh, Alexander, for that very kind and generous uh, introduction. Um, in the interest of time, because I think my lecture um, may be um, just a tad uh, bit long, but I'm trying to be as circumspect as I can uh, about an issue that I think is so susceptible to uh, misunderstanding that uh, one cannot afford to speak, it, uh, speak about it without being, uh, at least to some degree, circumspect. Um, the title of my lecture tonight uh, is uh, Complementary Limits, Sharia and the U.S. Constitution. And so without any more delay, I'll just get into uh, my lecture. The recent Charlie Hebdo murders added yet another layer to the ongoing estrangement between Islam and the West, especially Islam in the West. Even before this tragedy, however, there were those who insisted that we were acting irresponsibly and ignoring what they insisted was a glaring and irreconcilable incompatibility. Indeed, in his 1996 book, 
the clash of civilizations and the remaking of world order, the late Harvard professor Samuel P. Huntington proclaimed openly, quote, the underlying problem for the West is not Islamic fundamentalism. It is Islam, end of quote. Huntington would go on to explain this claim based on his understanding of a fundamental difference between Islam and what he referred to as Western Christianity. Western Christianity, according to him, had fundamentally shaped Western civilization. And among its chief contributions was the principle of separation between church and state. This idea, according to Huntington, was entirely absent from Islam. Note, incidentally, not Eastern Islam, but Islam. Rather, as he put it, quote, in Islam, God is Caesar, end of quote. Thus, any honest articulation of Islam should do away with any claims or suggestions about popular sovereignty, pluralism, human rights, or free speech. Instead, we should acknowledge openly that committed Muslims must, as a matter of religious duty, seek to make the law of the Muslim God the law of the land, the whole land and every land. Of course, Huntington was a well-known conservative, and this might prevent some of us from fully entertaining his views, especially given what we know about the role of some conservatives in promoting Islamophobia in America. But such views are unique neither to Huntington nor his ilk. In a recent work by a noted expert on Islamic law, hardly a conservative, certainly not in the American tradition of conservatism, we read what amounts to a similar, if not identical, view. Here we are told that the sovereignty of the modern state is unbounded, extending its jurisdiction over the full range of human activity, at least in theory. At the same time, Sharia, and I quote, as a representation of God's sovereign will, regulates the entire range of the human order, either directly or through well-defined and limited delegation, end of quote. Ultimately, in other words, the relationship between Sharia and the modern state, including, one must assume, the American state, is one of categorical conflict, an epic clash between two unbounded sovereignties, the unbounded popular sovereignty represented by the modern state and the unbounded sovereignty of Sharia as a representation of God's unrestricted sovereign will. To be fair, this perspective is not limited to non-Muslim scholars in the West. Muslims too, both here and in the Muslim world, often espouse or tacitly endorse similar views. To cite one highly influential example, the once chief ideologue of the Muslim Brotherhood, Sayyid Qutb, pressed the notion of al-hakimiyah, or divine monopoly on rulership, to the point of denying the legitimacy of any man-made system of law. According to this view, part of the whole meaning of the Muslim testimony of faith, the shahada, is that God and God alone has the authority to confer rights and impose obligations. As such, any man-made system of law that does not derive its authority from God must be illegitimate. And any Muslim who recognizes such a man-made system is guilty of attributing ultimate authority to someone other than God in clear violation of Islamic monotheism or tawheed. I'm not yelling, I'm just trying to project so people can hear me. I'm not angry. <laughs> okay. 
My own perspective on the relationship between Sharia and the American state moves in a very different direction. I begin by challenging what these and other scholars take to be the unbounded nature or limitless scope of Islamic law on the one hand and the U.S. Constitution on the other. Regarding the latter, I invest heavily in the understanding that the whole point of the Constitution to begin with is essentially to limit the sovereignty of the state by placing certain rights and even entire areas of concern outside or beyond the state's jurisdiction. This is particularly relevant in the case of the American state, where the First Amendment places explicit limits on the government's ability to establish or curtail the free exercise of religion, among other things. As for Sharia, contrary to its popular image, it too, as I shall try to show, is self-limiting in terms of the range of issues it recognizes as falling within its proper authority. In fact, Sharia even restricts itself in terms of the actual persons that it addresses. But this will be of less relevance in the present context than the first kind of restriction. These self-imposed constraints on the Constitution on the one hand and on Sharia on the other represent what the title of my lecture refers to as complementary limits. And these, I shall argue, engender two significant, if not decisive, effects. First, they drastically reduce the domain of what many would assume to be a direct and unmitigated conflict between the Constitution and Sharia. Second, they open up a broad and expandable area in which Muslims can indulge in good faith in secular negotiations with their non-Muslim compatriots without in any way abandoning or giving offense to Sharia. This enhances the possibility of social solidarity between Muslims and non-Muslims. For ultimately, social solidarity depends neither on shared values nor on ideological consensus, but rather on the ability to establish and sustain meaningful public conversation. Of course, given the mania of our post-9-11 moment, one could hardly expect an American Muslim, such as myself, to question, let alone deny the legitimacy of the Constitution or the American political sphere. The question, however, is how credible Muslim claims regarding America's uh, legitimacy actually are. For many Americans, it is difficult, if not impossible, to square the notion that Sharia could recognize the U.S. Constitution, let alone the American political sphere, given the explicit license America grants to such behaviors as alcohol consumption, the taking of interest, or now gay marriage, all of which Islam holds to be immoral. Similarly, the fact that the Constitution was entirely produced by non-Muslims makes it difficult for many Americans to fathom how Sharia could possibly accept it as legitimate. To my mind, these are serious impediments to any meaningful communication about Sharia, especially the kind of perspective that I shall try to present tonight. As such, I would like to take a moment to address these possible sources of confusion directly before moving on to my discussion of the concrete functional limits on the scope of Sharia's jurisdiction. I should like to begin with a distinction between, uh, between affirming the morality of the Constitution or the American state and the legitimacy 
of these. I do so against the tendency to equate Islamic with moral. And from there, to go on to render morality the exclusive measure of fidelity to Islamic law. On this understanding, no other principles, for example, order, or privacy, or security, or even mercy, are capable of competing with morality. And any articulation of Islamic law that does not privilege morality is looked upon with suspicion, as either a compromise with immorality, or as an attempt to disguise duplicity. But when the Qur'an insists on four eyewitnesses to substantiate a charge of adultery, or when it upholds the validity of pre-existing incestuous marriages, clearly some salutary consideration other than morality is being privileged. Yet these Qur'anic positions remain by definition Islamic, and it would be erroneous, if not disingenuous, to impute, to impute insincerity to the Qur'an's condemnation of adultery or incest based on these Qur'anic rules and accommodations. This distinction between morality and legitimacy finds precedence going all the way back to the normative practice of the Prophet Muhammad. During negotiations over a treaty called the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, and this is just one example, the Meccan polytheists refused to recognize God as the all-merciful, the mercy-giving, al-Rahman al-Rahim. They refused to recognize the Prophet as Prophet, and refused to recognize the Muslims' pan-Arabian right to visit the sacred house in Mecca. The Prophet looked past these infringements and agreed to the treaty. Clearly, however, the Prophet recognized a distinction between the detailed substance of the treaty, aspects of which he did not see as moral, and the treaty's overall legitimacy as a binding agreement. My point in all of this is to highlight the distinction between legitimacy on the one hand and morality on the other, and to underscore the fact that a good faith Sharia approach might hold the U.S. Constitution and the American political sphere to be fundamentally legitimate, even if it does not deem these to be entirely moral from the perspective of Islamic law. This is especially the case given that the Constitution explicitly guarantees religious freedom to American Muslims, at least in the form of the fundamental right to be Muslims. Regarding the matter of the non-Muslim origins of the Constitution, we need but go back to the aforementioned treaty ratified by the Prophet Muhammad. Here we see that the actual substance of this treaty was not unilaterally dictated by Sharia. Rather, it was a negotiated product between the Prophet and the polytheistic Meccans, major aspects of which were actually dictated by them, i.e. the Meccans. Yet the Prophet accepted this treaty as both valid and binding, as essentially what may be considered an Islamic treaty. This speaks to the fact that a rule or institution can be Islamic in the sense of being accepted or sanctioned by the religion of Islam, even if it is initially of non-Muslim origin. Thus the fact that the U.S. Constitution was not the product of Muslims, or that it was not directly dictated by Sharia, does not stand as an insurmountable barrier to Muslims being able to recognize its basic legitimacy. For while sometimes Sharia actually dictates what is Islamic, uh, sometimes it merely validates as Islamic 
rules or institutions that are actually of non-Muslim provenance, but that meet the criteria of Sharia's own internal logic, priorities, and recognized interests. Indeed, anyone who has studied Islamic history will be familiar with countless examples of this, from the so-called sacred months ratified by the Qur'an, to the domes and minarets that come to define Muslim houses of worship, to the Hellenistic contributions to Muslim rationalist theology. I would stop here and move directly to the matter of Sharia's concrete limitations. But the theoretical recognition that I have outlined thus far actually falls short of the kind of patriotic loyalty that many Americans expect and are demanding of Muslims in America today. In addition to knowing that Muslims can think and speak in terms that recognize America's legitimacy, non-Muslims want to know that Muslims actually feel this commitment on a deep psychological and emotional level. They want to know that Muslims share with their non-Muslim compatriots what Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter once referred to as cohesive sentiment. And they want to know that Islam is no barrier to the development of this kind of psychological attachment. Otherwise, they fear, Muslims may simply be biding their time by hiding behind sweet-sounding rhetoric, only to throw off their emotional masks when the time is right and reveal and act upon their negative feelings both about America and about non-Muslim Americans. On a certain level, and given the present state of the world, these kinds of concerns are not entirely unreasonable. On another level, however, I worry that they might be a tad bit self-serving in their tendency to shift responsibility for any alienation that Muslims in America might feel entirely to Islam. This tendency to shift responsibility in this way is further reinforced by a rather curious oversight regarding the overall demographics of Islam in America. While the stereotypical image of a Muslim in America is that of an olive-skinned immigrant from the Muslim world, a fairly recent Pew survey reveals, uh, reveals that upwards of 20% of all Muslims in America are native-born black Americans, making black Americans the second largest ethnic group of Muslims in the United States. Now, the importance of this fact goes beyond the mere problem of an accurate representation. Rather, once we take this fact into account, it becomes easier to imagine that Islam may not be the only or the most operative impediment to the emergence of cohesive cohesive sentiment among American Muslims. As far back as the late 19th century, the towering black American intellectual, W.E.B. Du Bois, famously asked, am I an American or am I a Negro? Can I be both? Near the end of the 20th century, the black American Nobel laureate and Princeton professor Toni Morrison offered a disquieting, albeit indirect, response. Quote, at no moment of my life have I ever felt as though I were an American. End of quote. These are not isolated sentiments nor are they unique to black Americans <clears throat> excuse me, who occupy the socioeconomic margins of society. And yet, these sentiments hardly translate into a widespread rejection on the part of black Americans of the basic legitimacy of the American political sphere or the U.S. Constitution, let alone a mandate to destroy or undermine either. Indeed, 
beyond considerations of specific government policies or specific social political episodes, such as what we see in places like Ferguson today, black American attachment to the American political project may be as unchosen and thus as impervious to conscious renunciation as is any of our attachments to family, neighborhood, or the racial or linguistic identities to which we almost involuntarily cling. In a similar fashion, and especially given the reality of Islamophobia, many non-black American Muslims in America may be alienated from America to a degree that forestalls or attenuates the amount of cohesive sentiment they feel towards their fellow Americans. But this should no more be taken as proof of their rejection of the overall legitimacy of the U.S. Constitution or political sphere then black American alienation can be taken as proof of their rejection of these. Nor should Muslim alienation be mistaken as some kind of proof that Islam imposes upon them a religious duty to hate or distrust Americans or to destroy or subjugate the United States. Having now hopefully paved the way for a more open-minded hearing, let me move on to the functional limits of Sharia. It is true at least in part, as Huntington insists, that Islam never formally recognized the principle of separation between church and state, neither in the form of the privatization of religion, where religion becomes entirely a personal matter with little social political implications, nor in the sense of state neutrality vis-a-vis -vis other religious communities in society. For pre-modern Muslims, religion was simply not an exclusively private affair. On the contrary, it had a divinely sanctioned social-political role and was routinely assessed in terms of its social-political impact. In this regard, we might note that the Quran rarely addresses individuals and almost always addresses the community of believers as a whole. Similarly, Islam in the pre-modern Muslim state was favored above all other religions as the most appropriate overseer of the common weal. Such religious supremacism is highly offensive to our largely liberal sensibilities today. But it might help to put things in perspective to note that while one could be a Jew in Morocco, a Christian in Cairo, or a Zoroastrian in Shiraz, one could not be a Muslim, and certainly not a Muslim community, in Paris, London, or the Chesapeake Bay until well nigh into the 20th century. And yet, Pre-modern Muslim supremacism was a far cry from the situation prevailing in much of Europe before the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648. The Muslim ruler did not have the right to determine the religious affiliation of those residing in his domain, neither among Muslims nor among non-Muslims. Indeed, in times and places, for example, where Shiite dynasties ruled over predominantly Sunni populations, as in Fatimid Egypt or in Buwayhid Iraq, there was no purging of the population of Sunnis. The Safavid dynasty in Iran, which began in the 16th century, appears to be the exception that proves the rule. At any rate, there was also no legal mandate for people of the book, that is, Jews and Christians, to adopt the religion of the Muslim ruler. In fact, the general tendency was to extend this exemption, by way of analogy, to other religious communities, such as Zoroastrians, Hindus, Sabians, and others, who were technically not considered people of the book. Nor did the Muslim state subscribe to what I have referred to elsewhere as legal monism, according to which a single law of the land 
was adopted and applied to all citizens evenly across the board. Rather, Muslims and non-Muslims enjoyed a significant degree of communal autonomy. While everyone came under the jurisdiction of a battery of, of public criminal sanctions, for example, those governing theft, murder, and the like, Jews and Christians could drink wine, eat pork, worship their gods, and educate their children as they saw fit. In fact, according to the Maniki School of Law, the school with which I'm most familiar, the going opinion was that non-Muslims were not even subject to such Islamic penalties as those for adultery or fornication. Rather, to quote one authority of the classical text, quote, Christians do not receive the prescribed Islamic punishment for this private offense. Instead, they are referred to the authorities within their own community. End of quote. Of course, it would be naive to assume or assert that this recognition of legal autonomy placed religious minority communities on an equal social footing with Muslims. But the same could be said of Muslims in the West today, given the, rea given the reality of Islamophobia, despite the explicit legal protections they enjoy. Meanwhile, such social, uh, such social discrimination as invariably existed in pre-modern Muslim society never succeeded in obliterating the widely diffused recognition of the fact that Sharia recognized the communal rights of religious minorities, a recognition that continues to assert itself down to the present. As late as 2010, how do we say that, 2010? As late as 2010, for example, amidst a conflict with the Egyptian government over its attempt to force the Coptic Church to issue marriage licenses to divorced Coptic Christians, the then leader of the Coptic Church, Pope Shenouda III, issued the following statement. Quote, We simply ask the judges if they want to reconcile with the Coptic Church to apply Islamic Sharia. End of quote. Sharia, in other words, would allow the Coptic Church to manage its own affairs in the realm of marriage free of non-Coptic government interference, a vestige of Islam's pre-modern arrangement that Pope Shenouda was now seeking to turn to his community's immediate advantage. In sum, the fact that Islam never produced a treaty of Westphalia or a formal doct doctrine of separation between church and state is not, as Huntington and others imply, related to any inherent duty that Islam imposes upon Muslims to subjugate the world and impose a single religiously dictated way of life. In fact, rather than seeing the principle of separation between church and state or the Treaty of Westphalia as products of European Christian genius, it might be more accurate to view them as a result of European Christian need. And in this light, it seems unfair to blame pre-modern Islam for not developing these kinds of responses to a need it hardly felt, uh, or hardly generated, and barely felt. But this recognition of other religious communities' right to exist is actually not the self-imposed limitation of Sharia that is most relevant to our present discussion. For in America, we do not live in a Muslim or an Islamic state. We live in a secular democracy governed by a constitution that both prohibits state-sponsored establishment of religion and protects the non-state-sponsored free exercise thereof. As such, the question for us is how Muslims who are committed to the authority of their own religious law, that is Sharia, can, 
in good conscience recognize the validity of a secular constitution and secular rules and policies, and even participate in shaping the very substance of these, without violating or abandoning Sharia on the one hand, and without seeking surreptitiously to impose Sharia on the other. This discussion must begin with a fact that is often buried under the weight of the cliché that Islam recognizes no distinction between the sacred and the profane. The notion, as Huntington put it, and I quote again, in Islam, God is Caesar. In point of fact, however, <clears throat> Muslim jurists displayed a, con a consistent concern with making sure that neither the state nor other jurists would be able to exploit the religious law by using it as a means of lending religious authority to views that were not actually grounded in the sources of the religion. My own exposure to this aspect of Muslim juridical thought goes back to my days as a graduate student and my experience with a now old friend of mine, the 13th century of the common era, Egyptian jurist Shihab al-Din al-Qarafi, on whom I actually wrote my PhD dissertation way back in the last century. Al-Qarafi was a major figure in his own day and remains a significant influence on the discourse on Islamic law among Muslims today. In a word, he is about as mainstream as they come. Now, among his numerous works, Al-Qarafi authored a book entitled The Book of Perfection in Distinguishing Legal Opinions from Judicial Rulings and the Discretionary Actions of Judges and Caliphs. Among the basic aims of this work was to lend legal sanction to the Muslim state's use of power, while restricting that use by carefully defining the jurisdictional parameters of the religious law. His fear, in other words, was that to empower the state in the name of the religious law, while leaving the parameters of the law itself poorly defined, would invite totalitarianism. Not only that, it would empower non-state jurists in their interactions with the community at large to claim or implicate Sharia authority on matters in which they themselves had no specific training or expertise. Thus Al-Qarafi lays down what I refer to elsewhere as a pure law doctrine. According to this doctrine, that which can claim the authority and backing of Sharia, i.e. that which is Shari'i, and please remember this word because I, I can't come up with, a, with an English translation of it, so I'm just going to use that word, Shari'i. That which is Shari'i is that which is either concretely derived from or concretely validated by the sources of the religious law. This stands in contradistinction to the non-Shari'i, or that which is derived from or validated through secular deliberations. As examples of the latter, he includes such, uh, he includes such and I'm quoting here, rational pursuits as mathematics, geometry, sense perception, customary practices, music, and the like. Al-Qarafi's point here is that what the law books or the jurists say about these matters, about their substance, not their status, is not part of the religious law in the proper sense, and cannot therefore be clothed with Sharia authority. Among the important corollaries of this distinction, meanwhile, is that it recognizes a secular realm and application of reason, sense perception, science, and the like, that can be negotiated without in any way violating abandoning or encroaching upon the authority of the religious law. Now the relevance of this non-Shari'i realm to our present discussion 
begins with the fact that so many of the rules and policies, including constitutional ones, that affect our daily lives are grounded in amoral, not to be uh, confused with immoral, secular considerations, such as order, safety, long-term resource management, social security, and the like. One wakes up in the morning, takes a shower, eats breakfast, gets in one's car, turns on the radio, and goes to work. Rules grounded in secular logic press their claims at almost every step of the way. Landlords, for example, are legally bound to provide heat and hot water, as these are deemed to be basic necessities. <clears throat> the ingredients in our breakfast are regulated by food safety standards. We must carry driver's licenses and honor traffic laws. FCC regulations bring us public service announcements, and in our offices and classrooms, building codes and zoning regulations all press their claims. To the extent that these rules and regulations are grounded in secular logic that falls outside the boundaries of what is strictly shari, Muslims can contemplate, negotiate, and engage them without relying on or giving offense to Islamic law. To argue, in other words, that the legal age for driving should be 15 or 17, or that pesticides that use atrazine should be banned, would not revert to any strictly Sharia-based dictates. These would be argued, rather, on the basis of such secular considerations as safety, order, biochemistry, and the like, none of whose inherent authority derives from or necessarily contradicts the religious law. The same would apply to health care, gun control, immigration, FAA regulations, building codes, zoning laws, voting rights, tenure procedures, economic policy, and a virtually endless list of issues in the, in the public domain. On all of these issues, the secular logic invoked by Muslims would be generically indistinguishable from that of their non-Muslim compatriots. And Islamic law would pose no barriers to their weighing in on these issues or to their non-Muslim compatriots' ability to engage them on a formally equal footing, namely the secular calculus of safety, order, resource allocation, health implications, and the like. In sum, in the space generated by the Constitution's self-imposed restrictions on religious establishment, and <clears throat> by Sharia's self-imposed restrictions on the reach of its own religious authority, Muslims can negotiate sizable areas of the applied order in America with non-Muslims, despite their outstanding mutual differences with regard to religion. Of course, to many, especially Muslims, this might come across as a rather facile, even if, even if sophisticated attempt to justify the secularization of Islam. For many Muslims suspect fellow Muslims who even speak of Islam and the secular in the same breath of capitulating to the unstoppable advance of a secularizing Western modernity. In fact, many non-Muslims harbor similar suspicions. And this is because, to the modern mind, religious and secular are assumed to be in sharp and bitter conflict. And when it comes to Islam, this conflict is understood to be all the more complete and irreconcilable. But I would like to draw our attention to two facts that might set us on our way to an alternative understanding. First, there is, an important distinction be, uh, uh, there is an important distinction to be observed between secular on the one hand and secularism on the other. 
The relationship between the two <clears throat> might be likened to that between science and scientism. Science entails a tradition and battery of methods for the proper understanding of the natural world. Scientism, on the other hand, entails the belief that the methods of science are the only means by which to gain authentic knowledge, period, including that of the supernatural world, if indeed we acknowledge the existence of such. <clears throat> now, just as one can reject scientism without rejecting science, as many believing scientists obviously do, so can one reject secularism without necessarily rejecting the category of the secular. For secular, or perhaps I should say the Islamic secular, simply refers to the this-worldly realm that is not explicitly regulated by direct reference to scripture. Secularism, on the other hand, entails the belief that there are no realities or considerations beyond the this-worldly realm, and thus no role at all for any transcendent scripture to play, except perhaps in the privacy of one's home or one's individual conscience. My argument is that while Islam unequivocally rejects secularism, it does not question the validity of the secular per se. Indeed, as we will see, Islam views the secular realm not so much as a rival, but as a complement to religion. Second, the common understanding of the relationship between the secular and the religious is based on the history of the early modern West, particularly that of emergent Protestantism. A specifically secular realm is said to have emerged out of a desire to protect the religious law of Christianity from the ravages of the temporal world. It was based, as one scholar put it, quote, on an acceptance of the fact that the divine law and sacred ideals of justice have to be violated in the temporal world, end of quote. Thus, in his 16th century tract entitled On Trading and Usury, Martin Luther is said to have warned that the world would be reduced to chaos if men tried to govern according to the gospel. His solution was thus to remove those problematic areas of concern from the jurisdiction of the church and place them under the coercive, explicitly non-religious secular arm of government. Of course, Muslims too face the problem of the ravages of the temporal world. But instead of seeking a separate realm into which to place anticipated would-be violations, Muslim jurists sought, rather, to expand the definition of religious compliance itself, <clears throat> such that many prima facie violations could be kept within the sanctum of the religious law. In other words, instead of saying that dealing in interest or setting aside the punishment for drinking always violates the religious law, Islamic legal, uh, Islamic legal methodology recognized instances in which these actions could be deemed to be consistent with the law. Thus the scope or magnitude of anticipated would-be violations never reached the point of recommending the solution that was put forth by Luther. To be sure, as we have seen, there were limits beyond which Islamic law would not extend. And the end of the proper reach of Islamic law constituted the beginning of the boundary of Islam's secular realm. But we should be careful here not to confuse the limits of Islamic law with the limits of Islamic religion. While Sharia could not dictate in concrete terms the proper speed limit or the age at which to allow citizens to drive, this is not to say that Muslims should not appeal to God and the spiritual technologies of Islam 
to guide them in their deliberations regarding these matters. It is simply to say that neither the Qur'an, the tradition of the Prophet, nor the machinery of Islamic law could validate any of their conclusions on these matters in concrete, specific terms, such that we could say that this or that speed limit or age for driving is the law of God, in the same way that we can say that the ban on drinking wine or the obligation to pray is the law of God. In the case of speed limits, or driver's licenses in fact, we could readily change our conclusions on the basis of science, experience, and the like, in contradistinction to the case of drinking wine or prayer, which would remain impervious to the conclusions of science or any other extra-scriptural authority. And yet, the relationship between the secular and the religious realm in Islam remains far more complementary, as opposed to oppositional, than it appears to be in modern Western thought. We begin to see this more clearly when we compare the various definitions of secular in the modern West with vocabulary of the Qur'an and Islamic tradition. In his celebrated book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor gives three possible definitions of secular. One, emptying the public space of God. Two, a voluntary public and private falling away from God, religious belief, practice, and institutions. And three, a societal condition when belief in God moves from being virtually unchallenged to being extremely difficult to sustain. Others have used the term secular as a complement to the French laicite. And so others have used it to refer to an attitude that opposes living, God and, uh, living life in a manner that puts God first. In all of these definitions, however, religion and the secular are assumed to be in fundamental conflict. When we turn to the pre-modern Muslim lexicon and legacy, however, a different picture begins to emerge. In its basic dictionary meaning, the term secular derives from the Latin secularis, and you'll have to pardon my Latin pronunciation here, and simply means of or relating to the worldly or temporal as distinguished from the spiritual or eternal. In the Qur'an, this meaning is captured by the word dunya, which literally means the near, or the nearest, but connotes the life of this world in contradistinction to the life of the hereafter. In this capacity, the Qur'an just opposes dunya not so much to religion, or deen in Arabic, but to the afterlife, or akhirah. Of course, given the centrality of belief in the afterlife to Islam, there is a certain tension between dunya and deen. But the Qur'an does not assume any categorical contradiction between the two. Rather, the Qur'an openly acknowledges the importance of the this-worldly realm to the religious enterprise. Thus, we read on the one hand numerous verses such as, that is because they prefer the life of this world over the afterlife. But these are joined by verses that warn against hyper or mismanaged religionism that leads to the neglect of legitimate worldly interests. Quote, say, who has forbidden the adornments of God and the good provisions he has brought forth for his servants? Say, these are in this life for those who believe, who alone shall enjoy them in the life to come. Such verses are reinforced, meanwhile, by even, by even more explicit verses, such as, seek through what God has given you the abode of the afterlife, but do not forget your portion from this world. In effect, through its self-imposed restrictions on the scope of Sharia's authority, 
Islam actually creates its own secular realm and gives it meaning. But this secular is not anti-religious. It is simply non-shari'i, in the sense that it refers to that which cannot be explicitly validated by the religious law, as we see in the case of speed limits and setting the legal age to drive. Equally important, however, Islam secular is not even entirely non-religious. For ideally speaking, a Muslim's deliberations within this realm should be informed by broader religious values, meanings, virtues, or imperatives. Safety, for example, like patience, is a religious value in Islam. But concrete views about what is safe, 50 miles per hour, 70 miles per hour, or how much patience one should actually exercise, cannot claim concrete, concrete scriptural, or sharia backing. For the answers to these questions do not rely on specific verses of the Qur'an or statements by the Prophet, nor on analogies made on the basis of these. Rather, these answers draw upon such things as empirical experience, statistics, rational deduction, or even perhaps religious imagination. And it is precisely for this reason that Muslims can engage in these and related kinds of secular deliberations, both among themselves and with their non-Muslim compatriots without violating, relying upon, or abandoning Sharia in any way. Of course, for some, this too will simply come too close to putting Muslims on a slippery slope towards the complete secularization of Islam, that is, secularization in the Western sense of the term. Bit by bit, and under pressure from the dominant culture, the suspicion is that Muslims will conveniently find ways of interpreting away the authority of Sharia in order to justify ceding more and more authority to the secular apparatuses of reason, science, public opinion, and the like. This is a serious challenge, and I am personally committed to avoiding this trap. But there is another trap, indeed another kind of secularization, that I think may be, more, uh, that I think may be even more dangerous precisely because it's more likely to go undetected. This is the kind of secularization that results when we come to look at Sharia in the same way that the Enlightenment came to look at reason. In the same way that reason came to be accepted as the means through which we can answer every question a human existence might raise, we come to see Sharia as being capable of addressing every question a human existence might bring about. When this happens, there ceases to be much meaning in the enterprise of turning to God for actual guidance, insight, or facilitation. And ultimately, this all-encompassing, panaceaing view of Sharia renders the whole psychodynamic or spiritual relationship with God almost entirely irrelevant. So why turn to God when we have Sharia to tell us everything? A Sharia, incidentally, over whose meanings we preside as the ultimate arbiters. This, in my view, not recognition of Sharia's jurisdictional boundaries or Islam's recognition of a legitimate secular realm, is what threatens to lead to the real secularization of both Islam and its religious law. Of course, I do not wish to be misunderstood here. We cannot, in my view, dispense with Sharia without running the risk of falling into the idolatry of worshipping our own subjective would-be religious epiphanies or alleged spiritual insights. But allow me here, before I move to my conclusion, to share with you an insight that I hope will clarify the point that I have been trying to make about the dangers of over-Shariatizing everyday life.
This insight comes from the famed classical Muslim jurist and theologian, Taqiyuddin ibn Taymiyyah, a man whom no one, not even his enemies, would ever accuse of being soft on Sharia. Despite his recognition of the centrality of Sharia to the life of Muslims, both individually and collectively, Ibn Taymiyyah signals a clear and insightful warning to the effect that even in all of its expansiveness, Islamic law should never be taken as a substitute for actual God, or for real and actual communion with God. He writes the following, Even were we to assume that a person came to know every command and every prohibition in the Qur'an and Sunnah, the normative practice of the Prophet. The Qur'an and Sunnah would simply address matters of general categorical import, as it is impossible to do other than this. The Qur'an and Sunnah would not mention that which is specific to each and every individual. And for this reason, humanity has been commanded to appeal to God directly for divine guidance to the straight path. We should be clear about the broader implications of this statement. Communion with God is not simply a matter of filling in the spaces left behind by Sharia silences. It is critical, rather, to determining the very substance and certainly the application of Sharia itself. In other words, just as we recognize as Americans that without a culture of tolerance, qualified egalitarianism, and a respect for people's right to pursue a dignified existence, all of the legal guarantees of the Constitution are likely to come to naught. Muslims must similarly recognize the dangers of a Sharia that is uninformed by a proper psychodynamic connection to God. In conclusion, I have argued that rather than being unbounded, both the U.S. Constitution and Sharia admit of self-imposed limits. The Constitution limits itself by insulating certain fundamental rights from the government's reach and even placing certain prerogatives of government, for example, presidential pardons, outside the democratic process. In this context, the popular sovereignty represented by the modern state, including the American state, is neither absolute nor unlimited, but rather constrained and domesticated, at least in theory. In a similar fashion, I have tried to show that Sharia also admits of self-imposed limits, among the most important of these being the distinction between what can and cannot claim Sharia authority in the form of being explicitly derived from or validated by the sources of the religious law. In effect, these limits on Sharia call into, realm, uh, call into being a realm which I have referred to as Islam's secular realm, wherein Muslims must rely on a palpable degree of individual autonomy, and collectively speaking, even something approaching popular sovereignty. This also happens to correspond, meanwhile, to that realm in American politics or public discourse where countless social political issues reside and are debated, from gun control to the minimum wage to whether or not the state should impose a tax on soda. Inasmuch as all of these issues and countless others are negotiated through secular, non-Sharia-based considerations, Muslims may freely indulge their non-Muslim compatriots without relying on or giving offense uh, to their own religious law. This negotiation includes negotiation over constitutional issues, 
And I have tried to lay out why I think Sharia poses no insurmountable barriers to a basic recognition of the U.S. Constitution's legitimacy. I do not wish, however, in the final analysis, to overstate my case. All of the foregoing notwithstanding, there remain numerous areas of conflict between Sharia and the American social political order. For example, Muslims will continue to assume that they and their non-Muslim relatives cannot inherit from each other the prescribed shares of inheritance outlined in the Qur'an, and established Sharia doctrine holding dog saliva to be ritually impure will continue to prompt many a Muslim cab driver to refuse service to patrons with seeing eye dogs. Muslim judges, magistrates, and police officers, and there are Muslim judges, magistrates, and police officers in America, will invariably be called upon to punish or allow actions explicitly allowed or prohibited, respectively, by Sharia. And many Muslims will continue to question the propriety of consigning their communal interests to political representatives who do not share and may not even recognize their religious values. On the cultural level, meanwhile, even the most imaginative reinterpretations of Islamic law won't be enough to validate such American cultural features as hookup sex or drinking at the corporate retreat. And yet, I think it can be reasonably argued that part of Islam's overall social political value, and I would argue part of the social political value of religion in general, resides precisely in its ability and willingness to challenge dominant cultures and the overwhelming power of modern states. In this light, for Muslims to seek to bring Sharia into blanket conformity with every aspect of American law and society would be to diminish, if not undermine, the very social, political value and meaning of Islam. After all, if Islam simply confirms everything that liberal democracy produces on its own, it is not entirely clear what Islam's practical relevance might be and why, it's not, why it should not simply be privatized. And yet, had the U.S. Constitution intended for religion to be entirely privatized to the point of emptying the public space entirely of religious influence, as some French promoters of laïcité seem to advocate, or had it envisioned a society in which everyone was religiously alike, it is difficult to imagine the role and wisdom behind the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. In other words, being religious different seems to be more consistent with than it is an offense to the U.S. Constitution. In sum, even if certain conflicts between Sharia and the American legal order remain, including some that appear to be irreconcilable, I am not sure that this is an entirely unhealthy dissonance, neither for Islam nor for the American body politic. And I certainly don't think that these conflicts rise to the level of negating Sharia's ability to recognize the basic legitimacy of the Constitution and the American public sphere. Indeed, a fair and honest assessment of the situation might allow us to see that American Muslims differ in this regard only in degree and not in kind from any other religiously committed Americans, including Christians, Jews, Native Americans, and others. In fact, the strictly political situation facing American Muslims, which we may distinguish from uh, uh, the social cultural situation, may not differ categorically from that of many Muslims who live in the Muslim world. Thus, in strictly political terms, Islam in America may not be as out of place as many Muslims may be given to think. 
And against the views of thinkers such as Huntington, Islam in the West may be no more a problem than is Judaism, Christianity, or other religions. In fact, unless we are willing to place our confidence in the idea that our political leaders are or should be secular saints, it may be that religion, including Islam, is not the worst problem that America could have. Indeed, perhaps far from it. Thank you very much. I think I probably tired them out. That was intentional. Sure. I can do it if, if there are any. Yes. Um, I, I don't know where to begin because I, I heard so much and I had so many issues with what you said that um, I started taking notes and then I stopped. The title of this talk is intended to be the Sharia and democracy, and, and, and I think the way that you presented it, at least the professional posters said. And uh, what you presented it was as Sharia in, in the United States and its relationship with the U.S. Constitution. And everything that you said was in the context of, in a way, this is the way I took it, as a way of consoling and reframing Sharia for Muslims that live in the West. Where I think the issue really that's facing us is not just Muslims living in the U.S. and how they view Sharia, but rather reconciling Sharia with democracy. And so many laws that you did say uh, that, that seemed trivial where there was dissonance between the two, you've left out some fairly prominent ones that that would actually create issues and the reconciliation would be well nigh impossible. And, and, and you actually appropriately touched upon the risk of secularizing Islam and secularizing Sharia. Uh, case in point, age of marriage, um, inheritance laws, um, punishments for, for, for certain kinds of crimes. I mean, these are really nice theoretical and academic conversations that you can have here at Stanford in the U.S., but imagine having this speech and this talk given in the Islamic Republic of Iran or in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Imagine, furthermore, that you would have a Christian or a Jew or a Zoroastrian or a Baha'i present a very similar talk in those countries who believe that their interpretation of Sharia is the interpretation and not yours. So, if I understood your message clearly, if I understood the message of your speech, it seemed to me that it was in some ways um, rationalizing or presenting a rational view of Sharia for Muslims that live in the United States. And, and for that purpose alone, I would say it was a very good talk. But I don't believe that that really was the issue or the issue at hand as it relates to most of us who are concerned about um, the image of Islam, the, the acts that are committed on behalf of Islam and in the name of Islam, and its consequences in the communities where Muslims live and are integrated. So I'd like to just... Um, 
ask for your comments with regards to those points that I just made. Well, I mean, you know, you, you said that I, I, I presented a lot to be, to be processed, uh, 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 so did you. Um, as, as kindly as I can put this, um, let me say this. I have difficulty with your point of departure. Uh, and that is that uh, the lives and interests of Muslims in America are secondary, or perhaps tertiary, to those who happen to live in countries that have been traditionally Muslims. I reject that, that premise. Uh, and to say that Muslims can only say something meaningful when they're talking about issues 8,000 miles away, while they have children, they have wives, they have jobs, they have families, that they want to uh, assure the welfare of right here in America. Uh, that's illegitimate. I reject that premise out of hand. And so the fact that I limited my comments to Islam in America um, I mean, if you take that as being a defect, fine. Uh, I don't. Uh, and I think that the, the interests of my grandchildren in America are just as uh, legitimate as the interests of people in Iran or Saudi Arabia or any place else. That's the first point. Second, I think you, uh, you're assuming a lot to say that I would not say this in the Muslim world. Um, in fact, I'm going there in a few days uh, with a very similar lecture. I've been there before and given a similar lecture. Uh, I gave a lecture in Arabic so that everybody can understand what I was, I was talking about uh, in Qatar, which I said similar things. So the idea that this is only for American consumption, uh, that's simply not true. Thirdly, on the issue of incompatibility, I, I acknowledge that. Okay? Um, and I don't try to, to hide from that. But what I have a problem with is the assumption that that, that conflict is much broader and much more irreconcilable um, than it actually is. I mean, you brought up the issue, for example, of uh, child marriage. All right? What is the age of child marriage? That's not a shari issue. That's not an issue on which there's any text or any. That's for societies to sort of negotiate on their own. Now, the Muslim world have may settled upon its, its age. That's fine. Or maybe it's not fine. All right? Uh, but what I'm talking about is the fact that Muslims in America, all right, have the right and the responsibility to do the same thing. Uh, with regard to, you know, what Muslims are doing in the world, what would you like me to do in an hour about that? To say that I don't agree with ISIS, is that what you want to hear? I mean, I'm not sure what you're, what you're getting at. I mean, if you talk about democracy, um, how long has democracy been uh, in America? How, how, long has about, how, how long has democracy been in... I know the answer you're asking. You're making a point, but I think... Right. You know I know the answer, yes. And you know the answer too, right? All right? What did that do for my, uh, my ancestors? So why do we compare one real with another ideal? I mean, these are human societies. And hopefully those of us uh, who have a sense of responsibility, uh, who have a, a sense of... Uh, of wanting to contribute to a better world. Not a utopia, but a better world. Hopefully we can realize that by thinking and, 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 and talking and, and, and acting in ways that actually nudge us in that direction. All right? But to say that, well, things are not ideal, therefore it's hopeless, I mean, I, I just, I don't accept that premise. Yes? Yeah, I, I enjoyed your talk very much. <laughs>
It's extremely stimulating. Uh, it's not necessary to agree with everything you said in order to be stimulated, and I thank you for that. Uh, I do, however, I'm curious to know <clears throat> a little bit more about, if I may use the term, the kind of strategy uh, that is illustrated by... It seems to me, first of all, there's a, a, there, there's a great deal of weight placed on two sources. I suppose you could say analytic sources. One is the distinction between morality and legitimacy, which is really crucial. Because it implies that if legitimacy is a question of, you know, constitutional representation or majority rule, mm -hmm. and then we get kind of close to democracy as an amoral arrangement in which you don't have to, you know, deify popular sovereignty in order to accept it. Mm -hmm. I find that very, very appealing. Mm -hmm. However, how realistic is it to maintain the separation between morality and legitimacy? Perhaps, if I may say so, any more than it is to maintain the distinction between the secular and the sacred, especially since some of the most contentious issues seem to those, if you will, looking at Sharia from the outside uh, to be immoral. I, I find it fascinating, and I'm sure you know this, that in the survey research, Pew and all of the others that have, you know, scoured uh, Muslim, non-Muslim countries, Muslim minorities, Muslim majorities, and so forth, and the question arises, what is the main source of dissent, or main issue of dissent? And it's not democracy. It's not democracy at all. Mm -hmm. Not at all. Muslim uh, respondents are in favor of democracy. I mean, I, obviously I'm generalizing here. I don't have the data in front of me. But encouragingly, one might say, that's not the problem. Although you can always wonder what an individual actually means. Thinks, right. Or what do you actually think, yeah. But the sticking point which simply cannot be, it's, it leaps out of the data, is women's rights, the inalienability of women's rights, which has to do with treating them from a Western quote-unquote perspective as human beings whose rights cannot be taken away. Well, that's, that's going a bit far, don't you think? It's a humanist position. Well, it's a humanist position, and I think that, that what, what often pollutes these discussions is that they are carried out in a very hegemonic fashion. No, I'm not well, hegemonic. No, no, no. Well, you say, you know, you talk about what's human and what's not. Okay, so, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I, I can't, I... I can't differ with you without being anti-human. Well, you're at a university. I oh, of course. I agree with much of what you said, but if you would prefer to delete that last part, okay. feel free to do so. Yeah. But what I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that um, one, one possible response to this issue of, would you want to use the term women's rights? No, no. Uh, come on. I, I'm not... I'm, I'm not. I'm not objecting to your 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 invocation of women's rights at all. And we can talk about that. But go ahead. One uh, one of my uh, let me say this. One of my very close Muslim friends. You know, we have this conversation every now and then. And he has he has a marvelous solution. He says, you know, in terms of inheritance, he's Muslim. His daughters are Muslim. His sons are Muslim. And he says, in terms of inheritance, no problem. I make out a will. Now, maybe this illustrates your very interesting notion of enlarging Islam's secular realm. Because I make out a will, and since it's a modern will, which obviously would not appear in you know, reference on whatever page of the Quran, then I am doing something which is not in contradiction with the rule of inheritance regarding, regarding women. 
Um, another uh, Muslim friend of mine, these are, you might say, apologetics, uh, but they're... That's wrong, actually, but anyway. ...by non-intellectuals. I, I think all of us, not all of us, but those of us who, for better or worse, you know, claim to be pseudo-intellectual, uh, as I would certainly, I think may have an exaggerated desire for consistency and, well, theoretical frameworks. You know, theory is all over this campus, believe me, from one <laughs> department to another. Uh, and there are sort of quotidian solutions that don't invoke larger issues of the kind that you have uh, suggested. And then there's some very creative arguments. I mean, for example, another <coughs> colleague of mine argues that Allah is a feminist. Allah is a feminist. And when people ask him why, he says, look, you know, <coughs> in the society of Mecca, the Jahaliya, right? I mean, it's a horrible place where women have no rights whatsoever. And so he gives women what he can get away with. It's a pragmatic act on the part of Allah. Because he knows that if he institutes immediate equality between men and women, you know, the religion will die. <laughs> because he's going to lose. He's going to be, you know, read out of town by the polytheists who are in charge of Mecca at that time. And so what he says to himself is, I'm going to give women half the right of inheritance in this case. But eventually, in time, I want to up it to equality. And, you know, now, I suppose there are some Muslims who would say, uh, this is heretical. But in, you know, I'm thinking here particularly of Indonesia, where much of my experience with Muslims uh, has taken place and is very encouraging in that regard. So there's all kinds of creativity, if you will, in the interstices of these larger, of these larger issues. And finally, when you talk about, I mean, there's much that one can discuss on what you have to say. For Clearly. Islam's secular realm, there's a sense of nudging it, nudging it outward. And then the question is, where do you run up against those elements of the Quran that cannot be interpreted in the manner, for example, that I've suggested, and you have to stop? And then just one more. Let's talk about this. Is I'm not right. Can I have a pencil? So I can't. I can. <laughs> this is fascinating. When you talk about the proper psychodynamic connection to God, hmm? you know what I think? I think Sufi. And is it possible? I know we haven't talked about the variance of belief within Islam as much as we might have, but is it possible that there is a Sufi nudge somehow implicit in what you're saying that might move in a direction that I think everyone in the world would welcome? Um. <laughs> because it's direct to God. Um. Well, let me say, let me, let me start... I, I, want to, I want to get one thing clear before I forget it. Sure. Uh, 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 first of all, um, contrary to what uh, I may have miscommunicated, I, I may have given the wrong impression, uh, my aim was not uh, so much to expand the secular, the secular realm of Islam. That was not my, my aim to expand that realm. It was simply to earn a recognition for the very existence of that realm. And how expansive it becomes or not, you know, that's a matter of negotiation within the Muslim community. All right? Um, now, um, the issue you raise with, 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 with equality, um, again, um, I mean, there, there are a couple of things I, I, I want to say about this. And I think that um, for me, to be very honest with you and to be very blunt about it, uh, these are important conversations. 
But it's also important to get the terms of the conversations correct. To get the terms of the conversations in such a manner that they can actually remain conversations. Alright? And what we consistently do is we invoke liberalism um, as the absolute. And then we proceed to tell Muslims, okay, what are you going to do to become more or closer to liberalism? Even if that means throwing out your, your scripture. And while... No, no. Well, it... it, it, it throw out the scripture. No, no, no. But, but, well, then, if you're talking about uh, equality, all right, you can either approach that issue in one of two ways. One, we can engage in scriptural interpretations, all right, that um, from which we're able to extract you know, equality as a norm, okay? Or we can simply say, no, equality is the absolute and anything that is not equal um, is not legitimate, okay? And then the question becomes, well, what are Muslims supposed to do with that? Um, when we talk about equality, we're very, two things I want to say about that, we're very selective. Do we want equality, really? Um, um, and I, I know that many of them may not admit it in, in, in this room. But, you know, I talk to some Muslim women about equality. I happen to be married to one. Um, and... Um, when it comes to certain obligations that are unequally distributed, not all Muslim women want equality there. They might want equality here, or they might want it there, but not necessarily there. So, well, my, no, but that's that's cultural. My wife didn't have to worry about that. I grew up with no sisters. I know how to sew and all that stuff. Uh, that's 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 not an issue. But the point that I'm trying to make. Let me let me let me let me just get to the real point that I'm trying to make. Because I'm not trying to apologize for Islam. Islam doesn't need that. What I'm trying to do is get us to a point where we can begin to talk about these things in a manner that actually allows for the perpetuation of conversation. But when we come in with with absolutes that are extraneous of Islam. Even if Muslims acquiesce, the conversation is over. No progress is made. Is equality extraneous to Islam? What kind of equality? equality. Formal equality? Equality between Formal them. equality? So, how many Muslim women here would say, no more dowry, no more mahar? How many Muslim women here? In return for what? Well, that's it. In return for what? That's right. In return for what? That's right. To drive. <laughs> Come on, see that? No, 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 no. You're, you're, see, see, no, no. You're being hegemonic here. You, you know, this is this is, and this is this is what I'm saying. I mean, th these these issues are too important to be playing games like this. We have to agree that women should. We have to keep this uh, conversation. Which no, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's get let's get. Whoa, whoa, whoa. One, one last comment on this. See, and, and, and this is where no, this is where we end up in these in these in these deficits. All right. Uh, uh, the Quran nor the Sunnah says women get half of men. It does not say that. That is not Islamic law. Half has to do with daughters, not women. Okay, daughters. Okay, all right, all right. Now, now, now. So, are we going to go through and say, okay, we're going to get rid of mahab, get rid of that, get rid of financial responsibility, right? 
get rid of all of the financial responsibilities that, that men have and just, just distribute them evenly. Is that, is, that what we're, is that what we're talking about doing? How is that a strong man? That's equality. Well, okay, I, I'm not understanding you then. Okay. I'm not understanding you then. I, I want to be clear about something. I think that the, the conversation between Islam and the West today is a critical conversation. And I think for those conversations to fail have very far-reaching potential implications. And I think anything that, 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 that preempts the possibility of sustaining meaningful conversation needs to be thought about again. Instead of coming in as, you know, liberal fundamentalists, all right, and then saying, well, without this, you guys are inhuman, and there's nothing to talk about. I think we have to be very careful about that. By the way, uh, my wife drives. <laughs> and so does my daughter. Yes. Yes. So, um, as somebody who moved to the United States and studied Islam, I think I understand from my conversations with, with non-Muslims in the United States uh, what their concerns are. And I actually think they're oftentimes obscured. This could be purely anecdotal. They're obscured by, by other political actions that might be happening at any particular given moment. Um, I, I think, from my conversations with non-Muslims, they're scared of Islam because every time they see Islam, it's horrific. And secondly, the only thing they know about Islam is that it's some sort of draconian legal system that's always cutting somebody's hand off or stoning somebody. And then, when you try and have an academic conversation about Islam, like we're having here, right, it's, it's in the context of the the the, uh, the murders in Paris or or these other things and that's what people want to plot and I think that also gets obscured by politics which I think really is what driving a lot of the conflict in that part of the world people in the United States I was reading an article just before I came here they really believe Americans really believe that Muslims want to come here and impose Islamic law on non-Muslims of course. and subjugate them. Why do they believe that? And is it true? Because if all they know about Islam is I'm going to cut your hand off and stone you, and then they say you're here and you're taking over, it scares the heck out of them. And it leads to other conflicts in that part of the world, and that's what I want to avoid. That's my question. Well, if, if that question is not clear from what I said, I don't know how much more clear I could, I could make it. I mean, that Muslims have some kind of religious duty to subjugate America? No, I reject that out of hand. And I reject that, by the way, uh, not just as an academic, but as a scholar of Islamic law, um, who studied it both academically and traditionally. That's my opinion. So why does that persist? Well, I think that, look, you know, um, um, there was a French author named Guy Debord wrote, wrote a book back in the 60s called uh, Society of the Spectacle. And one of the things he talked about um, is how uh, optics uh, has the potential of taking over our lives and fundamentally uh, degrading the human faculty of encounter. Whereby um, it gets so bad that I'm here talking to you as a human being. You can reach out and touch me. 
But you can't really indulge what I'm saying because all the images about me keep coming between you and me in terms of our ability to actually encounter each other as human beings. And I think there is something to that. Um, and I think that, you know, the, 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 the idea that Muslims outside the people who are doing those things, and those who agree with them, and there are those who, who agree with them, agree with this stuff, I mean, why would you think that? And I think that part of what I'm trying to get to is that there are adjustments to be made on both sides. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Because, you know, we, we, we again, we compare ideals to, 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 to realities. Okay? Um, you know, you talk about uh, Americans be af being afraid. I don't know of people in America right now who are more afraid than Muslims. I don't know a group in America who's more afraid than Muslims. Alright, that's the one point. Second, you know, um, you know, if I, if I, uh, as a black American, you know, went into the local KKK headquarters and just killed everybody inside, how many people would believe that I did that because I'm a Muslim and they're Christians? How many people would believe that? What if I quote a chapter and verse from the Quran? That's why I did it. How many people will still believe that? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know in history, alright, that while it does not legitimate what I did, certainly lends an understanding to it. Alright? I think that one of the things that Americans need to become more responsible about is why they are so quick to believe all of this about Islam and Muslims as a whole. Not the people who are doing it. Alright? Because those people are just as severely criticized by Muslims as they are anybody else. Uh, Alexander mentioned uh, the last book I wrote. Let me tell you what this book is about. Some of you are old enough to remember when it actually happened. The guys that killed Anwar Sadat, remember that? Horrific! Horrific! They went to prison. They spent decades in prison. In 1997, they came out and renounced political violence. And let me give you an idea of how big these guys were. Their prison population alone was estimated at 30,000. They killed hundreds upon hundreds of people, all right? Including high political officers and everything. In 2002, they issued a whole series of books. This is the Gamal Islamiyah, all right? Under a series titled, Correcting Misunderstandings. And they said, what we did was wrong. We thought we were defending Islam, we went to prison, got an opportunity to study our own tradition, and we concluded what we did was wrong. In 2004, they produced a whole book criticizing Al-Qaeda, that what Al-Qaeda is doing is wrong. And this is going on. Nobody hears about these kinds of things. Alright? I mean, so the idea that, you know, Everything that happens, every beheading or something like that, Muslims are really sitting around, wink, wink, isn't that horrible, wink, wink. That's not what's going on. Muslims are horrified by this stuff. And not from a, an apologetic posture. Alright? This is wrong according to Islam. Alright? And, and one of the things that we have to figure out, you know, is how we establish the kind of conversations that could actually begin to make a dent, alright, on the spread of that kind of, uh, kind of ideology. And that's why hegemonic discourses 
that are, that are doomed from the beginning, I just have no interest in them. They're dangerous. Uh, yeah, one more. Is it easy? All right. Yeah, and they don't think about the they don't they don't think about the punishments for uh, you know for carrying a vial of crack cocaine. They don't think about that. Go ahead. So, um, as a Muslim, say, uh, there's a, I, in California election, I have to choose, you know, whether, uh, two, two options, whether to give money to the homeless or to, and then another option is uh, abortion rights. Now, as a Muslim, how do I navigate that and say, well, because I've heard some Muslims say, well, I can't say, I can't impose my religious belief uh, that abortion is wrong on non-Muslim. So I'm going to say, you know, it's okay because we live in a democratic, pluralistic society. Can I, as a Muslim, say, no, I have a certain belief. I'm in a democracy. I can make a democratic decision and say, I don't think abortion right, I don't think people uh, should have the right to abortion. What is navigating those types of decisions in, for a Muslim? How do you see that point? Well, let me say two things. First of all, I don't think that you should be disqualified as a Muslim any more than Christians who do that, or maybe some, some, some Jews who do that, should be disqualified because they're Christians or Jews. I mean, that's the whole point of a, of a democracy and the procedural you know, mechanism for accommodating disparate and conflicting views. Second, in terms of your own deliberations, be very careful. Not all Muslim jurors hold abortion to be, uh, to be prohibited. Um, so, so, so I would not necessarily be going against Islam for supporting uh, abortion rights, right? Um, and, 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 you know, where my priorities go, that's what I'm talking about. That's a secular issue, Islamic secular, not in the, the Western sense. But you're, you, no, not to siyasa. No, not to siyasa. Uh-uh. I'm going to have to deliberate on my own. No verse from the Quran, no hadith from the Prophet, nothing in Islamic law is going to tell me which of those candidates to support. And in my, in my, my deliberations with other people, all right, we just got rid of the whole notion that I can't support him because he uh, supports abortion. Well, that's not an issue. So now how do we negotiate this? We use logic, we use this, we use that, but it's not a shari issue. That's all I'm talking about. All right? And I think that part of my interest in all of this is, is that by ignoring the non-shari, they remain unregulated. And lots of bad stuff happens when that happens. I, 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 as I said, absolutely. What is the point of a First Amendment? I mean, you can't have an established religion come and say, the state must do this because our religion says it must do it. Alright? But for a, a Christian to be at home and say, you know what? Uh, I don't think that it's a Christian thing to do to support abortion. That's part of the whole point of democracy. 
certainly an American democracy, all right, that champions freedom of religion. Thank you very much indeed.